Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you all to the latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. I'm your host, Lee Nichols. Now, we have a very special guest joining us today on this episode of The Main Column podcast, Dr. Bob Mahan, who's the Executive Vice President of Sustainability, Technology, and Innovation of SABIC. Now, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Mahan today about SABIC's drive for sustainability, including investments EVs, the circular economy, electrically heated steam cracker furnaces, and so much more. Now, we've got a lot to get to on this installment of the Main Column Podcast, so let's go ahead and welcome in our special guest. Dr. Mahan, how are you doing today? Excellent. Great to be here, Lee. Excellent. Uh, Now, before we jump into the bulk of what we want to talk about today, can you provide the listeners a little bit more information about your organization, SABIC, and of course, your role with the company? Oh, great. Yeah, no, I, I've been uh, in the petrochemical sector really my whole career in technology, um, 21 years with Dow and now four years with Sabic. Sabic, uh, if you're not familiar, is one of the leading petrochemical players globally, you know, with operations uh, all over the world. Um, and, you know, in my role, I, I sort of have two hats. Um, I lead technology for the organization. So that's responsibility for, you know, development of new products, processes um, and technology efforts. Um, support for licensing in and licensing out of our technologies, our corporate venture capital arms, where we look at investments in startup companies. Um, and, and then as well, uh, I have a second hat, which, which includes corporate sustainability. So that, that really includes the strategic focus around sustainability, sustainability reporting, you know, driving our, our decarbonization and circular uh, plastic agendas. Uh, so you know, those, those two, in fact, are, are roles that were put together when I came into the company. I think it's a testament to the role that we see, and I think the industry sees, uh, in innovation being critical to enabling uh, the sustainability agenda for the petrochemical sector, especially those those areas that I highlighted around carbon neutrality and, and plastic circularity. But but I would also argue around energy efficiency, you know, water water usage, waste reduction, and many of the other critical factors uh, that that are driving sustainability agendas in, in our sector. Excellent. And that's a great segue into the conversation I want to get with you today. So now to start this, to start off now, Sabic is investing in several sustainable pathways in the oil, gas and hydrogen landscape. So I wonder if you could provide our listeners just a brief overview on why your organization has decided to make these investments. Yeah, look, this is a critical time for the for the petrochemical sector. Uh, you know, if you look at you know really what's happened over the last ten years, and I would say even more in an accelerated way over the last five, I think you have a number of things that are that are impacting our decision making. So, you know, one, you have clear voice of consumers and NGOs, uh, you know, driving pressure around the path to decarbonization, um, driving more circularity, addressing plastic waste. Uh, you know, concerns over the quality of our of our materials, the safety of our products. Uh, so these are these are sort of external factors that I'd say are, are very important. Uh, those are also translating, you know, more into value chain action now. So when you look at at brand owners and retailers, they're also taking a number of these pressures to heart, uh, setting targets around the the recycled content of their products, for example, or the carbon content of their products. Also, themselves setting you know, decarbonization journeys and 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 uh, targets for themselves, and and then lastly, there's a you know there's a regulatory component, right? There there's certainly a driving regulatory focus. Uh, you know, if you just take examples in the kingdom where we operate in our our SEEK program, which is around energy efficiency, if you talk about the EU Green New Deal, 
you talk about, you know, investments in the U.S. around the IRA um, and, uh, you know, actions taken in, in many other countries around the world, you see a, a, a clear regulatory movement towards uh, driving uh, better sustainable footprints for, for products, uh, assets, and, and, and technologies. So those are all happening. And I think when you're in the sector, I think you, you either have a choice of saying, I'm going to be reactive to those pressures and be defensive. Or can I take a hold of knowing that this transition is happening, and can I lead as a as a chemical company in that in that transition? And you know, we from the Savic side believe that we should be leading in that transition. That we should be taking the right measured steps to deliver uh, on the right technologies, products, applications, and services to help enable the transition. Because we feel like the companies that can bring the right solutions um, based on the right sound you know technology and business principles are going to be the ones that can lead uh, as we come out of this transition. And so. For us, it's really important. I mean, it's it's important for us to make the right investments, but also to engage with those groups I mentioned, right? To engage with the value chain, the brands, to engage uh, with uh, the consumer directly in NGOs, to engage with governments, also on you know the, the the right pathways, policies, regulations, and solutions that we think are important for the sector. Uh, again, versus sort of re acting reactively um to what you know what might get developed which may or may not actually lead to an optimized solution so um so we feel it's important to be a part of that dialogue to be part of the solution space and uh, i i believe you know proud that we're making a lot of the right steps at this point excellent so now let's talk challenges so what do you see as the biggest sustainability challenges facing the industry today and as a follow up to that especially with what you do what role does research and development play in overcoming those challenges? Yeah, you know, to, for our sector, there really are, are two big challenges. I think one that's, you know, an overarching one is delivering on a, a low carbon future. You know, we set out a, a target of 20% reduction in our carbon emissions by 2030 and a, and a path to carbon neutrality by 2050. And that's a significant, uh, it's a significant target and uh, an ambition to go achieve around our scope one and two emissions. Uh, and you know, if you think about this sector, why is this a challenge? Well, you know, 80% of the emissions that the chemical sector produces really are around a few key intermediates, uh, products like, like olefins, uh, uh, ammonia, methanol, uh, and the derivatives that come from those. And the, uh, the 80% of those emissions are related basically to heat. So, you know, when you think, you know, you hear about this target of carbon neutrality and the complexity, you know, it's often not really understood that, that, you know, although it's a complex problem, it really comes down to the fact that it takes heat to drive our reactions. It takes heat to make, to make olefins. It takes heat to generate ammonia and methanol and many of the building blocks that we use. Uh, and most of that heat is, is delivered by natural gas uh, or, or other petroleum feedstocks. And that's where the, the essence, the, the 80% of the emissions for, um, the sector related to this heat. And, uh, and so it's really important that, that as a sector, we deliver the right kind of solutions that can deliver heat in a way that, that doesn't produce CO2. And so, you know, as an industry, I think that's one of our biggest challenges. How do we do this? And how do we do this in a way that we can make the transition happen affordably and at the right pace? And, and that's why when you, you ask the question around the role of technology, uh, it's essential that we're bringing new technologies to bear to deliver on that challenge. And if I could just give a perspective on it, you know, to deliver on a on our 20% targets for 2030, you know, for 2030 to see an impact on those targets, you really have to leverage technologies that exist today. 
you know, you have to drive energy efficiency, maybe leveraging digital tools and capabilities in your assets to get more efficient and reliable. Um, you can leverage uh, electrification of, of some downstream equipment that uh, where the technology is exists and scaled already today that can deliver uh, better, better efficiency and lower emissions. You can leverage some hydrogen in your assets. You can leverage purchase of renewable power uh, and, and to some extent, some targeted carbon capture. So there are things that you can do to deliver on that, that target we have for 2030. But to deliver on 2050 requires you to bring, you know, wholesale scaling of new technologies, uh, you know, electrification of furnaces for the production of uh, in reformers like uh, like products like methanol and ammonia. Uh, electrification of, of uh, olefin crackers, uh, in the case of production of, of olefins and aromatics, uh, and these are these are technologies that you know have to be scaled at a at a level that they have not been before and applied in new ways. You've got to deliver carbon capture at ever increasing scale and and driving as well improve efficiency and cost to make that affordable, and you've got to leverage hydrogen in a way that's m done in a much more significant way than done today. So technology is a big piece of it. Technology is not the only challenge. You know there 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 are challenges on on getting the right regulatory support the right policies, the right investments in infrastructure and, and partnership between uh, between governments and industry. But but uh, innovation is a big piece of that 2030 to 2050 roadmap. Excellent. Now, I'm glad you mentioned heat and uh, electrification. We're definitely going to get back to that uh, later on in the conversation. I, I have some questions about that. So one of the okay. things I still want to stick with those challenges right now, and of course, one of the biggest challenges facing the globe is plastic waste. So can you yes. talk a little bit about Sabic's True Circle portfolio? And of course, how is that helping customers and consumers meet their circular economy challenge? Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought it up because of course, you know, beyond carbon neutrality, right? Plastic circularity and, and addressing plastic waste is the other massive challenge, right? That the industry is tackling. And, you know, our True Circle portfolio, I think is a good example of how the industry has to tackle the problem. So when we, when we started to address this challenge, we recognized that there's not gonna be one holistic set of solutions to address it. Uh, and so when you think about True Circle uh, and, our, and our offering in True Circle, it, it, it encompasses a number of pillars. So it encompasses mechanical recycling, uh, advanced recycling, uh, leveraging bio-based feedstocks as well, um, designed for recycling, where we work with our customers to, to help simplify and, and better deliver uh, improved uh, plastic solutions. Uh, and then, and also services, uh, you know, uh, beyond that space, uh, working with our customers and, and an example being closed loop solutions where you manage that plastic through the whole value chain. Uh, a number of great examples where we've, we've brought together retailers, brands, converters, uh, and as well as us on the producer side and, and technologies needed for the conversion and, and tie that whole loop together. So for us, True Circle is, is encompassing all of those pillars. And it's about making sure that your, your offering can address the broad needs. So if you think about um, the plastic challenge, you know, there are, you know, if, if you have a preference on, on delivering an end of life solution for plastics, it's low, lower in energy, lower in cost, and more efficient. That's mechanical recycling, and that's that's why it's a critical piece of the equation. Uh, and so we're clearly in, in invested in uh, improved resins that can enable higher recycled content, so that you don't sacrifice performance. Um, but also selling compounded solutions with recycled content that that can be um, can be directly implemented by our customers. 
you know, uh, great examples of materials in that space. You know, one one kind of iconic one that we're really proud of is working with Microsoft on developing uh, a mouse that's that's got the shell of that material based on um, recyclable content. Uh, but many many examples in that space of of us um, uh, leveraging mechanical recycling. Uh, but there are areas where you know, with with recycling, you 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 can't sacrifice the performance that you get that happens with mechanical recycling. And you, and you can't manage the impurities and the quality of the materials. And an example is in food packaging and, and, and as well health and hygiene, where you know, some streams from mechanical recycling, some waste plastic streams are not gonna be suitable to go into those applications via mechanical recycling. You can, you know, just as an example, you're not gonna take you know, medical, medical waste uh, packaging and, and transition that into a food packaging application via mechanical recycling. So, uh, so advanced recycling, where you where you take the waste plastic and convert it into a feedstock, is an essential piece. We call that advanced recycling. Uh, and the beauty of that technology is that you can you can convert that waste plastic in a broad suite of mixed plastics into a feedstock that can go into the existing infrastructure and produce virgin products with no sacrifice in performance, quality, purity, or, or safety and health benefits. Uh, so that's a critical piece of the equation. Again, you know, I always make this point: design for recycling is essential because it's one thing to say I can recycle the products um, that we use today, but I'd also like to be working with our customers to simplify packaging formats, to make them more recyclable, and to improve the the packages themselves. And so we work a lot with brands and retailers and converters on on simplification of packaging structures with resin solutions. Uh, and then lastly, I already mentioned this, this closed loop piece. It's, you know, again, working across that value chain. So we're proud of the portfolio. You know, we, we, we made the announcements around that back in 2019. And, and a big piece of that was uh, launching commercial products via advanced recycling, where we had taken plastic feedstock, converted to a, a, a new feedstock that we could use, crack that in our crackers in, in Europe, uh, and then deliver that with customers into a host of products uh, with customers uh, like, like Unilever and, and many others. Um, that, that example has now gone further. You know, we're in the process of completing the scale up of that um, to a, a commercial unit uh, that can both produce the, the liquid feedstock and treat it so that it's, that it's um, of, of use in our crackers at a much higher percentage. Um, that'll be operational later this year. And then we have plans to go to one order of magnitude scale beyond that. So that's a, that's one example of the kind of investments that we're making, but but you do need to look holistically at all of those solutions across those pillars I mentioned um, to deliver on the needs for the market, and that's that's why we've taken that approach. No, excellent. And I want to stick with with some of uh, Sabic's uh, products that you produce. Now, I, I did see some of this during research that you produce several EV components, and y'all are actually even a sponsor for Formula E which I'll talk to you afterwards. I'd like to try to get some tickets to that. <laughs> but, <Sure. laughs> so I'm kind of curious, so why is uh, your company, Sabic, choosing to focus on electric vehicles in particular? Well, I think, you know, one thing that gets lost in this discussion on decarbonization and this energy transition, you know, is that there's, there's a lot of focus on the cost, the the risk, the transition, what does this mean for consumers? But the reality is there's also a significant business opportunity uh, and, and a lot of value that's going to create jobs, that are going to create new industries that are going to grow. So there's a lot of opportunity in this transition. And I think it's important to, to think about it in that way. And for us, you know, we look at where is the best, you know, market opportunity for our materials? Where can we be most enabling? And, you know, the growth in plastics has been because it's been enabling 
in terms of, of, of packaging, health and hygiene, industrial applications, you know, light weighting and bringing improved performance benefits, you know, reduced waste and, and better transportation costs, et cetera. And, you know, EV is, is um, no different. So, you know, there's going to significant growth, as you know, in the EV space and with clear, clear announcements, you know, as part of the IRA here in the U.S. that are supporting the infrastructure and, and build out of, uh, of EV, e vehicles, uh, clear policies in place now in Europe, um, you know, targeting a transition, you know, that's accelerated depending on the, the country between 2025 and 2030, where you'll, you know, their, their plans to have no um, further production of internal combustion engines past those points. So there's a significant market drive towards moving towards e-vehicles. Uh, one of the challenges, though, with e-vehicles is, you know, you, you want to get range and you want to have safety and performance, right? So you want to be able to have a car that performs well, that gives you the range that you want, that's safe to operate. Uh, and uh, our solutions play a critical role in delivering that. So we can provide new uh, resin solutions and, and uh, compounded products that enable light weighting, which is critical to getting the range that you want in those vehicles that can deliver the fire, uh, uh, fire retardants performance so that you have a safe vehicle that if there's a, if there's an issue in the battery, that that's contained and safe to operate, uh, that can provide you the right sort of durability of performance uh, and the right, you know, even within the battery materials that Zavik produces that provide the right electrical performance to the battery. So, you know, we see that as a market segment that in and of itself is growing. It, it's, you know, yes, it's tied to sustainability, but it's also tied to, to customer preference and an ongoing, you know, change in, in uh, consumer uh, choice. Uh, but at the end of the day, our materials are enabling for that. So, you know, we're, we're a big sponsor because we are one, you know, committed to the energy transition and decarbonization. And I think Formula E, you know, represents that focus, right, which is also, you know, consistent with their agenda. Um, but it's also representative of, you know, the cutting edge of technology in the e-vehicle space. And that's one of the reasons we're also partnered. And we, di we didn't just sponsor Formula E. You know, we joined as an innovation partner for Formula E so that we can also incorporate our solutions into those vehicles, which we have some materials in the vehicles now. And we'll, as the further uh, iterations of those vehicles go, we'll add more of our materials throughout the vehicle. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one about, you know, our brand being associated with Formula E because of the alignment around the energy transition and decarbonization, but it's also about the opportunity in that market space and, and bringing solutions that not only are good business for topic, but that are enabling the performance that consumers need in the e space. No, definitely interesting. It's, it's, it's an incredible sport to watch too. Uh, yeah, that uh, whole, so uh, you know, on that point, Leah, uh, you know, the, the whole uh, that whole effort that we have there, we branded that as as part of our Blue Hero platform. Um, you know, we're focusing on obviously automobiles and the transportation sector there, but that, there's a much broader play across transportation and beyond electrification that we see. Uh, and you know, our our combination of material properties, you know, compounded uh, capabilities, uh, as well as our ability to to support application development um, and service and solution development with customers, we see as a big opportunity for us. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and so for my next question, I kind of want to go back to earlier in the conversation, we were talking about heat and electrification. So one of the, uh, I know, news reports that we published uh, that y'all sent out, uh, I think it was last year, was that you, your organization, BASF and Lindy, were working together to build a large-scale electrically heated steam cracker furnace pilot plant 
Uh, and I believe that was supposed to start up this year. So my questions are, one, has that plant started up yet? Uh, and two, if so, what are you and your uh, project partners hoping to gain from that project? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, great question. And look, this is one of the most, you know, in my time in Savik, one of the most exciting projects that that we that I've been a part of and, and be able to see come together. And and partially because it's, you know, if you if you work within the industry and the sector before, uh, it's hard to bring, you know, peers slash competitors like BSF and 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 Savik, maybe even Lindy as well together to collaborate on projects, to share intellectual property. So that, that's in and of itself a challenge, um, getting the agreements in place, also doing that in the pandemic. So we actually started that collaboration and negotiated those agreements over the course of many uh, Zoom teams and, uh, and WebEx calls, as you can imagine. Um, but being able to do that with partners um, in a space that's really essential for the industry to take on was really uh, critical for us. And you know, the background there is we were developing our own solution on on converting our furnaces for our olefin crackers um, to, to electricity. So we had our own technology solution in that space. Uh, BSF and Lenny were also developing an alternative solution and you know, it became very clear uh, early on, especially at the end of 2019, early 2020, that you know, this is a critical space. And as, as I mentioned before, it's an essential one because you know, a lot of the emissions in the chemical sector come from the production of olefins. You know, it's it comes from the heat needed to drive this reaction, and you know, just electrifying the furnace and the downstream operations of the of the cracker can can deliver a 90 plus percent reduction in carbon emissions. So it's a it's a critical target to go after. Um, and what we recognize is we had unique solutions, uh, being the the BSF Lindy and the, and the Sabic solutions. Uh, you know, there's capex risk, risk to scaling these. There's technology risk in the different solutions, and it made a lot of sense to take that risk together. Um, and, uh, you know, so what I'm really proud of is we brought our, our two sets of solutions together, had the teams working jointly on developing the right path to scale those up, doing that again during the pandemic and, and agreeing on, you know, not just the technology, but the principles of business of how we're going to work together. Uh, and to a case where we're sharing the intellectual property, we're working as, as clear uh, partners in the project. Uh, and not only do we have a plan to to demonstrate the technology, but also to take it out to the market. And Lindy will be the the licensing arm, and we have a, a full confidence that we'll have a, a technology that is commercially ready and available to take out and 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 leverage to the broader industry. And so that that facility is under construction now. Uh, you know, we're targeting the end of this year for startup uh, in fourth quarter. Uh, things are on track. Um, you know, as you can imagine, with any of these construction projects, there are always challenges, but the the team is on track with the milestones. We expect that to be operational. And the hope uh, to your question is that we'll demonstrate uh, with both technologies, and again, I think that's the key to this, that that we have two approaches um, that will allow us to decarbonize olefin cracker. where the the heating elements are are individually at the scale that they would be they would be used in a commercial furnace. So although the unit is smaller than a full-scale uh, cracker, the, the heating elements themselves are at that scale. And so we have a lot of confidence that if we deliver this successfully at the scale we're at, that we can take that to full scale. And also, uh, you know, I like to emphasize, you know, it's not really, some, some folks will say, oh, so you're doing a pilot plant. Well, no, this is really a demonstration unit. It's, it's bigger than that. You know, this facility is a six megawatt um, powered facility. Uh, that's running, you know, 100 tons a day of of, of feedstock at its when it's in, when it's operational. So it's a it's a real scale. It demonstrates 
um, the operability of these heating elements, it demonstrates two different configurations. Uh, one that's a direct heating configuration that's more consistent with how um, the furnaces um, operate uh, in an indirect approach that, that is wall heating. Um, you know, we, we kind of, uh, uh, you know, in a friendly way, kind of common, commonly call that the toaster uh, version where you have wall heating um, <laughs> of the gas. Uh, and there are pros and cons to both of those in terms of, uh, you know, how difficult the maintenance will be, um, how effectively you can transition the heating elements through the tube to optimize uh, performance. But what we know from both, uh, we have high confidence that we can actually improve uh, Olefin cracking yields and reduce coking because we have more control with this approach to design um, the, the profile of heating within the tube. So there's a lot of opportunity here. Um, there is, you know, some risk in the demonstration and, and, you know, how effectively quickly we can scale the technology. But the, the view is that we can leverage what we do in this unit to actually have a commercial offering in the market and at the end of 24 from Lindy that will you know take some time to roll out to the market, but that they'll have a licensable package by the end of 24. So that's an aggressive target, but I think it speaks to, this is uh, also why we did it together um, because not only do we collaborate on the technology solutions, but but because Lindy is a producer of furnaces for this sector and the technology for olefin cracking, mm -hmm. um, we can move immediately into the commercialization phase. So we don't have to take the technology and then work with a producer to to then build in the design capability there. We already started at that point and we can then take it more quickly to the market. Excellent. Uh, toaster heating, I like the way you put that. It's, pretty, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, no, it's great. And, and it's something that we, we really wanna track over the, over the course of, uh, of its completion. Um, Cause yeah. it's very interesting technology, especially with all of the different types of sustainability and net zero goals that, yeah. that, these, uh, that companies like yours are, are pursuing. Um, and so this kind of gets to my last question. And so I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on what the petrochemical industry is going to look like in the near and long term. So looking 10, 20, 30 years out. So I guess a, a better way to think of it is, you know, what do you, how do you see Sabic's petrochemical plants, what are they going to look like in the near and the long term? Is it going to include things like more renewable power, biofeedstocks, uh, an increase in chemically yeah. recycling plastics, like you mentioned earlier. Just kind of want to get your thoughts on where you think this industry is going. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, from a technology perspective, this is one we love to talk about, right? Because that's what we're being asked to do is sort of predict what that future should look like and make sure we have the right solutions to deliver against it. You know, look, I think from now till 2030, if I think about the near term, you know, you're going to see, a, in my view, a focus on, on optimization, on reliability and efficiency, uh, and you're going to see, you know, more tactical application of technologies that are ready for deployment at the scales that we're talking about. And I highlighted some of that earlier. You know, you're going to see increased leveraging of digital tools to optimize plant performance. Um, you're going to see increased leveraging of renewable power for the operations that are already electrified and maybe the tactical electrification of, uh, of rotating equipment and other things that are downstream and the, and the assets that are easier to make the transition where the technologies exist today. Uh, you're absolutely going to see stepwise improvements in the use of both recycled plastic feedstock and, and biofeedstocks, which are used today in our assets. But, you know, I think we'll, we'll, the, the scalability of those and the, the, the feedstock access will increase to allow us to leverage that. But I think the assets will look more or less like they do today, but with, again, the optimized operational efficiency, feedstock slate starting to, to diversify. And again, as you as you highlighted, starting to leverage greater degrees of, of renewable power. 
But from 2030 to 2050, you're going to see a, a substantial change. Um, you're going to see uh, a significant change in electrification of, of heating elements, uh, like the project we're doing with BSF. Um, you're going to see the deployment of large-scale carbon capture because in, in a lot of these a lot of these areas, you know, you're going to see a com competition between where you should electrify uh, and where it's best to do, to do flue gas abatement and capture the carbon. And a lot of that has to do with the geography that you're in, um, your access to carbon uh, capture uh, capability and storage areas, and the geology for that, as well as partnerships with governments that are enabling those kind of investments. Uh, and j just as an example, in, in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, like on the eastern side of, of the kingdom, great opportunities for low cost gas and, and uh, carbon capture capability. Um, but on the western side of the country, a lot more availability of renewable power and less carbon capture. So you're likely going to see different sets of solutions play out in different parts, not only within the kingdom, but, but broadly globally because of, of these differences in infrastructure and, and regulatory support and, and availability of natural resources. But you're going to see these assets look different, uh, greater leveraging of hydrogen, uh, greater leveraging of renewable power, greater electrification of the assets, more use of carbon capture, and, and a significant step at that point of, of the role of both um, bio-based feedstocks and, and recycled uh, plastics in those feedstocks. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's, I think, going to be the biggest change over time is as, as the infrastructure for recycled materials increases. Uh, as the availability of, of waste plastic uh, at, a, at, a, at a competitive cost and scale is available, you're going to see that as a, a substantial growth, in my view, uh, in terms of a feedstock for the industry. Um, and so, you know, that means we have to be developing those solutions now. And I think that's why, you know, I like your question, because, you know, if you think to, to 2050 uh, and then beyond that, uh, it's about, am I ready to use hydrogen? Am I ready to use more renewable power? Am I ready to do carbon capture? Am I ready to handle different feedstocks than I have today? And, and our view of that is, you know, we have to, we have to be ready, but we can't sort of wait for all that infrastructure and all those things to be in place for us to demonstrate these technologies. So we've taken a, a tact, and I think it's part of this 50 year plus vision that you wanted painted. I think it's very important over the next 10 years that we're demonstrating all of those things. So we're demonstrating electrification, we're demonstrating the use of hydrogen, we're demonstrating carbon capture in our assets, we're demonstrating uh, scale on things like advanced recycling, uh, we're demonstrating uh, scale on the use of bio-based feedstocks, uh, and that's why we've committed to do that. And you know, one thing that I didn't highlight in, in our earlier decarbonization effort is we've we've internally developed what we call a first adopters program where uh, we've identified the different asset footprints uh, that we will deploy at, at, a, at a commercial scale. Um, the the e-furnace technology we're developing with BSF and Lindy, um, the use of hydrogen as a feedstock into our furnaces and carbon capture, uh, all at commercial scales, all before 2030, because by doing that, we're now positioned to have demonstrated, understood the economics, understand the implementation challenges so that from 2030 and beyond, we're able to roll that out to all of our assets. So although there's a, a you know, for 2030, a lot of it is optimization and reliability and efficiency. It also is about embracing measured risk and scaling these technologies so that from 2030 and beyond, we're ready to make it happen. Uh, in a significant way. So I, you know, there's sort of two worlds that we're living in. We've got to deliver today. We've got to drive optimization and efficiency, but we have to prepare ourselves for these bigger transitions. 
Uh, we're certainly up to the task of that. It's why we're, you know, we're demonstrating these different decarbonization routes from now to 2030, and also why we're scaling things like advanced recycling so that we're ready to handle larger and larger volumes of that material in our assets. So it's a big, big, big investment for us. Uh, and we're not going to deliver on that that 2050 plus vision unless we invest today to de-risk those things. So I, I just hopefully that message comes through because we can't wait till the future to to take these actions. We have to be developing and implementing those things now. No, it's it's actually a very exciting and very interesting times. I think that we'll be living in. So <laughs> it's, it's going to be interesting how how the how the industry evolves in the future. So um, listen. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great talking with you. I know how busy you are, so I really sincerely want to thank you for giving us a couple minutes to talk about these really important items that are facing the petrochemical industry. Um, so thank you again for your time uh, to be on the, uh, on the main column podcast. And of course, with that, we also want to thank all of you for listening to this latest installment of Hydrocarbon Processing's podcast series, The Main Column. Great. Thanks, Lee. Enjoyed the discussion.